Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about the things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm Kate Taylor. Today is part two of our discussion about Bridgerton and the romance genre, featuring our special guests, Kelly Williams and Amanda Bales. So let's hop right in. That also brings up a really good point about the romance genre, because I read some of it, but I'm pretty aware of the bad rap that it gets. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's hard to deny that or escape that. But a lot of it comes from like the happy ever after, mm-hmm. because people see it as not creative and unearned and stuff like that. And I just can you guys talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's very much not correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've kind of hit on one of like my hot button topics. Um, so I think just in general, we have this idea that the more depressing and bleak something is, the more realistic it is. And especially that's true for something nowadays when we have our media bias, right? We necessarily think that the more worse stories are coming out, we, we know it's true. Like the world sucks because like, look at look at what the news is telling us. It's the same thing is true of any historical or even just literature in general. I'm thinking back to things like John Milton, who wrote these two poems, one about is it better to be melancholic and, you know, reflective or kind of joyful and mirthful. And he ultimately lands on melancholic um, because it is more worthwhile. So I think for a lot of literary history, at least in, in the West, quote unquote, we've held up the the bleak and the somber and the melancholy to be the more serious pursuit. And so what romance does, it goes, you know, I'm going to be happy for once, <laughs> right? I'm going to, <laughs> you know, craft a narrative that is optimistic. One of the defining features of romance is that it is optimistic. And it gets a bad rap because of that, right? It's seen as, you know, frivolous. It is seen as like ephemeral and not worth your time because, oh, the real world is filled with misery and we have to engage with it. But I don't know. (laughs) Amanda, maybe you can kind of jump in from maybe a writing perspective as well. It just, it doesn't seem like, at least to me, I'm just like, I need something to keep me going, (laughs) right? I can't just read about (laughs) terrible things happening all the time. And I think joy can be just a noble pursuit as, you know, reflection and melancholy. Yes, well said. (laughs) Snaps. Um, Yeah, so there are are probably a couple things um, that I would say about it, which is like, so there's sort of, you know, a more a more crafty um, idea in terms of like, oh, the happy ending, like, you know, things go well at the end and that necessarily being less than things sort of being a disaster at the end or things being melancholy or reflective or any of those kinds of things. And I think like, like there is this notion that somehow it is more difficult craft wise to sort of to like if we if we just take any sort of basic like you know here's a couple right it is i think it is seen as it is more difficult um from a craft perspective to sort of like disentangle them um and to sort of like pull those threads apart and to sort of pull apart you know something that was maybe previously like a, a fairly strong coupledom if you will um a fairly strong like romance or love or partnership or whatever it's it's seen as like oh well craft wise it's going to be more difficult and interesting to see like how these threads come apart and to really trace like how does this dissolving happen but it's seen as fairly simple for some reason um and, and you know we can talk about those reasons 
to talk about like how those threads come together, right? And like how people come together and actually like form a partnership. And, 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 and I think that there's a lot about that. I think a lot of that is like gendered and weird and dumb, <laughs> particularly with like, with emotions. And, you know, I talk to, I talk about this a lot, but like emotion, like, you know, because there's all of the like, your feelings guys out there. And oh, it's like, gosh. exactly. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, you are also having feelings all the time. Otherwise, why would you even have that bumper sticker? Mm-hmm. Like, that is an emotive thing to say. But also, like, the idea that, like, anger is an, is an emotion, but it's justified because it's, like, seen and coded as masculine, right? Whereas something like love or joy is seen and coded as being feminized and therefore is negative, um, and therefore isn't complicated and therefore, you know, is somehow easier. Um, and I do think that a lot of it comes down to like that. It's like, if you think about fiction in terms of, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, oh my God, the objective correlative, right? Like, oh, all of this is going mm-hmm. to create a certain thing within our audience, right? Um, we want every single piece of this to have this particular effect. And that effect needs to be deliberate. And that effect needs to have, you know, the author needs to be deliberate about the effect that they are meaning to have, the emotive effect they are, they are wanting to have, the affect. And then we can see like, well, we're seeing like, oh, the emotive effect, if the emotive effect is like joy and, you know, happiness and like, you know, glee and those kinds of things, then it's denigrated. Um, whereas if the emotive effect of the objective correlative is, you know, sadness, melancholy, all those kinds of things, then it's uplifted, anger, then it's uplifted. Um, and I do think there's a lot of like gender coding there. I really do. Yeah, and that seems like that gender coding is maybe not recent, but it has kind of gone through ups and downs because I'm thinking yeah. back to all of, you know, the literary movements and when having a bunch of emotions like romanticism, like having all of the emotions was seen as a very masculine thing to do. Um, and I think I think romance kind of pulls from that just a little bit, right? Because like all these men having emotions left and right, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's kind of interesting just kind of looking at it from that perspective because like Nowadays, we're just like, no, you have to be a steel wall <laughs> that in order to be considered, I guess, credible. I don't even know if that's cr- the correct word. Um, it's very strange. The patriarchy hurts everyone. It does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe that kind of goes back into something that we've talked about, Amanda, before is the idea of passion yeah. in romance, because we're... We had this conversation on the blog a while back where we were talking about like, okay, so we have these romance novels, but is it actually about romance? Because it's not necessarily about building this portrait of like a loving, mutual respect, right? (laughs) That can weather the hard times to come. It's not really about that. It's more about heightened emotions. Um, And that's what we think of passion as. So passion is just intensity right it's intensity of emotions and i think that's what's kind of going on in bridgerton because oh my gosh people fight way too much for that to be love (laughs) right (laughs) but we're kind of like a hallmark of the genre is being you know drawn to these intense moments where the emotions flare up right and what how do we navigate that um and because it's you know passion and melodrama are kind of entwined with the feminine there's something weird going on there that i don't know if we've quite figured out yet or articulated Um, but i think it might be worth bringing up yeah oh go ahead please do i was actually gonna kind of pitch it to you because from a craft perspective Mm. that just made me think of like conflict which we talked a lot about in grad school conflict goal motivation and that stuff yes and 
like I prefer, I guess, internal conflict, but I think passion in particular lends itself to external conflict, which is more visual because you've got at least two characters talking about it. And does romance's propensity for passion, is that coming from like a craft perspective about conflict or anything else like that? I think there's definitely like a a pretty big influence there and a pretty big idea. In fact, I think I remember one of our first conversations, Kelly, that we had was like, was basically like you had a question about like why this would have happened in a story. And and my genuine response was like, oh, it's because like they needed to return to the central conflict. Like, that's why it's because it was chapter four (laughs) and they needed to get back to it. And you were just like, really? That's the answer? And I was like, yeah, that's the answer. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, in fact, with my students, I, I, I have, I have replaced the word conflict with the word struggle uh. as a way to sort of pull them away from this idea that it always has to be like, you know, two people like with like really opposing goals, like, you know, like it always has to be this like super heightened, you know, antagonistic thing. Um, like struggle can be a lot of things and people can kind of struggle in the same direction and still struggle. Anyway, I'm going to stop saying the word struggle. <laughs> But yeah, I do think just the fact that it is a narrative and narrative in and of itself, right, is built off of a tension of some kind. Um, and it's a tension of things, whether it's the plot itself being pulled in a couple directions and we don't know where it's going to go, like in a murder mystery or whether it's like the characters themselves and their choices and we're not sure what they're going to choose, which is something that's a little bit more character, you know, made. Like there are lots of different ways that tension can work. It can be between the reader and the story itself, right? And like how they're interpreting it as they go. Like there are lots of different ways that that tension can work. But for romance in particular, it, it is the like, will they get together? Will they want, like, how will they? Because for the most part, we're pretty sure when we step in there that like they are going to like by the end, that's why we bought this book and have invested in this book is because we know there's going to be a happy ending. And so like, yeah, there are and there definitely are books that do trace that sort of, you know, these are two people coming together and like they're going to build, you know, this, we just have this idea that they're going to build this wonderful life together. And like, this is a great partnership. um, And this is going romance does tend to uh, like, you know, operate on this like higher key this like, you know, passion. There's often a lot of like, I'm, I'm so mad that I'm attracted to them, you know, kind of thing going on. And I do think part of that is, you know, specifically if we're talking about Bridgerton, like, like, and, and this, you know, the sort of the, the filmic adaptation of that part of that is in order to make it more visual, like yeah. to be completely clear. And so that actually also, again, gets back to like, well, this is, this is, you know, this is based on Tamiya Shrew, which was based on Commedia, Commedia dell'arte. Like, with fiction, you're never going to escape the dramatization, right? Like, it's roots in drama and in plays. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you're, like, it's very difficult to sort of, like, escape those kinds of, like, uh, structures. You know, people do it and they do, like, really experimental stuff, but that's really not the goal or the audience here. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, that has a lot to do with it just being fiction in and of itself. Well, and, I read a book for a romance class in my doctoral program, A Natural History of the Romance Novel by Pamela Regis, and she kind of codified the eight points of the romance plot. And if you then like lay any romance story on top of that, even super recent works, it's going to kind of adhere to that. And part of the, the joy of writing or reading one is if it can adhere to that, but still do something new and fun and different. And that you're right, the conflict doesn't have to be conflict, but struggle. And some of the best ones don't have the conflict being between the partners who are going to get together, but 
between the partners and society or between the partners and some external force. I'm reading one right now that's a paranormal romance that the external, you know, danger is a necromancer. And it's like, the <laughs> they're not in conflict. The people in the in the relationship are not in conflict with each other. They're fighting together against this external foe. And that is just as satisfying to me as having the Taming the Shrew style where they're fighting with each other. And they're going to ultimately realize that that's to, to hide their true love or whatever. Um, so yeah (laughs) and I I do just want to mention like I think part of why romance like you mentioned the eight point structure or the beat sheets and stuff yeah I think people look down upon it because it's so formulaic but actually from a craft perspective that's actually really hard to adhere to sometimes and especially if you want to like put a twist in it or make it unique and interesting and stuff like that and formula or knowing what's going to happen i think this is a not i don't want to say problem but i see this a lot more recently in the past couple years of people being like oh this was so predictable and they expect twist and they expect um like surprise and i'm like no that like this is foreshadowing and like you put all the pieces (laughs) together and that's why Mm -hmm. it was predictable (laughs) like that's good storytelling so i think people look down upon romance for being formulaic but it's actually that can be really comforting as well as a reader or as a viewer Mm, yes and it's it's all about knowing how things come together like you know it's gonna happen you know the hero and heroine are gonna get together but it's watching the how of it well and every genre has formulas unless you really are writing house of leaves or whatever every genre has formulas horror has formulas cozy mystery has formulas if i if i was reading like a an agatha christie you know, style cozy mystery. I'm not going to want like Poirot to get murdered on the last page himself. <laughs> like, like there is no, nobody's going to be comforted by that. Nobody's going to feel good about that. Everybody's going to be like, this was shock value for the sake of being shocking. There's no literary value or storytelling or narrative value in having something be surprising for the sake of it being surprising, unless it is experimental fiction, which I love experimental fiction, but I go into that knowing, okay, this is going to be weird and I'm going to not know what's going on. But if I'm reading almost any other genre, I want what is supposed to happen to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah I think anybody enters any genre with like a set of expectations, and it's kind of up to the author to either fulfill those or kind of play with them. And you get that just as much in romance as you do in any other genre. Like, I've come to romance novels being like, okay, so this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like something random out of the blue, but was foreshadowed. And I'm just, it was a commentary on, you know, women on the internet. And I was so, I was so pleased, you know, um, but it still hit all the beats, right? Um, it's just kind of just a matter of like, what is, you know, I, I keep thinking back to like how everyone was upset about Game of Thrones because it just killed people off willy nilly, right? People really, as much as they bash it, I think they really like having expectations thwarted but in a productive way as opposed to just like Mm -hmm. who's gonna die next week you know the the walking dead Mm -hmm. type deal yeah Yeah, for sure yeah i also find i will also find it always interesting that like a lot of people who decry any kind of you know sort of more 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 just honestly genre fiction which is how i like to phrase it like Mm -hmm. this is honestly genre right like i am saying that i am a cozy mystery i am saying that i am a romance novel i am saying that i am this um and therefore there are these certain expectations that you know that i'm going to be playing with um these certain genre conventions whereas like like 
I will go toe to toe with a lot of people talking about like something that is literary as some sort of like basic catch all when actually like there are very, very clear genre tropes there as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's this author, um, and I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head because I'm a terrible person. Uh, but the novel that they wrote was called Southern Cross the Dog. And basically they just read a whole bunch of like Southern literature and they had never been to the South. They had never like, you know, they had no connection to it whatsoever. They were in New York somewhere, whatever. And then they wrote this like Southern book, right? This like Southern like contemporary fiction book that like won all these awards and then people lost their minds when they found out that they like weren't from the South, like didn't live there, et cetera. Cause it was like literary and not like, you know, this specific genre or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, because this person genuinely went in there and was like, oh, these are interesting. Oh, I can like find what the genre commonalities are here, right? So if we're, if we've been talking about how a lot of most literary fiction ends poorly for people, it's like, well, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's genuinely a genre convention, right? Like that like yeah, you can start yeah. putting things together and putting things into categories mm-hmm. there as well. It's like contemporary, realistic, ends badly, right? Like by chapter five, this is going to happen. By chapter eight, this is going to happen. Like we can do the same things there as well, mm-hmm. pretty consistently. So I think that, I think that, you know, there's this, like you said, like there's this disparagement because it follows these beats or because it follows these things, but like that is the game. It's like this little narrative game. Um, and part of the joy is seeing like how people play this game with these particular rules. And it's just more honestly so than a lot of like, you know, people who are like, no, every time I sit down, I'm inventing something completely unique that has, you know, never been done before. And it's like, I don't know, read Flaubert, man. You're not inventing anything. Anyway. <laughs> Well, it's funny you call it a game, because if we sit, like, if we didn't take pleasure in the repetition of enjoyable activities, we would never, like, replay a board game. Like, I love to play Monopoly. I know Monopoly is going to end with somebody hoarding all the money, and I'm going to be all mad, and like, because it's not me. And, uh, you know, but I'll still play it, because the joy is the journey. The joy is the little nuances of the things that are slightly different, or the things that are comforting and the camaraderie that you get from the people you're playing with the characters in each individual book are the are the people that you're playing that game with oh definitely absolutely by the way as someone who also always fails at monopoly because of course like (laughs) like capitalism knows it hates me like it's just aware (laughs) so but there is this board game called cheaters monopoly it is and I play it with my nephew, and it is the only version of Monopoly I have ever won. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun. I'll have to look that up. It's hilarious. Yes. To swing back to Bridgerton, can I get your guys' general impressions about the season, whether you liked it more or less than the first season, who your favorite characters are, just some general overall thoughts? Uh, I think we talked about this when it when we finished watching. I think we both enjoyed season two better than season one yes or more than season one i found it just narratively a lot more satisfying because season one you got daphne and simon and they get together and then they start kind of fighting after they get married and it was just tedious (laughs) right (laughs) so i found season two a lot better there was a point where you know after the interrupted wedding where i was like okay now we're gonna have to drag this out until the end but it wasn't quite as bad (laughs) as in season (laughs) one so for that reason i really enjoyed season two i think anthony was very complex, and I enjoyed that about him. He didn't come across as necessarily this stock character whose trauma is being used for shock. I think it came across fairly well. If we want to talk more about that, we can, but it felt kind of more like 
a problem that he has to kind of deal with. He has to come to terms with his past and his own character flaws as opposed to just like, he's a sad boy. (laughs) (laughs) Poor sad boy. Yeah, that being said, I don't know about favorite characters because I enjoyed Eloise for a while and then like her complete disregard for like the people around her because she wants to just do what she wants and, you know, F society, who cares, right? Got a little bit on my nerves, but I kind of understand that as a character flaw more than, you know, an error in writing. But also, I love Penelope <laughs> um, just because, you know, she sees everything, uh, she comments on things, and she finds a way to grab power in a way that doesn't threaten her. I mean, it does a little bit, but just in a way that she finds very freeing, very empowering, and I, I enjoy that quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, so we, as we have discussed, my love of Lady Danbury knows no bounds. Yes. Um, I would, I would follow. Oh, by the way, so because I, I love her and was so interested in this actress, I, I did listen to one other podcast where she was interviewed, and it was so interesting because, like, so she grew up um, in like rural England as one of, I think, like, it was like her and her siblings were the only black kids in that village, right? And so she had, she gave this interview where she was like. So, you know, like, I learned to do this, and I learned, like, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, and I also fought. I was really good at fighting. And I was like, (laughs) of course you did, and of course you were. Of course that's, like, part of what I'm getting from you, is that you are genuinely a fighter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just for a little pause for listeners, that actress's name is Ajoa Ando, and she is wonderful. She's I've listened to some of the audiobooks that she's narrated, and she's excellent. Yeah, she's also on a new podcast, which I will have to like look up when I stop talking here in a second. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to think of it off the top of my head. My brain does not work that way. Uh, but yeah, she's also uh, part of a, a newer podcast that's come out. And just, yeah, just being able to listen to like, you know, her speak is like enough. It just makes my day. <laughs> so yes, of course, Lady Danbury is my number one. But also, I mean, like, I agree that that like Eloise in season one was definitely someone that I think I was like, Oh hell yeah. Uh, and then in season two, it started getting like, okay, but, but you're starting to like have a real effect on other people and you're still not caring. And that's becoming a pretty big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly when she was having this effect, not just on her siblings, but on people of like a lower class and people who had a lot more to risk because they don't have, you know, the kind of like wealth and position that is going to protect them. So yeah, I agree. Like that's right there. And also, I mean, you know, and this is something we'll get into. We'll put a pin in this and come back to it. But like, I really did have such hopes that Eloise was going to be queer. Like I had such hopes. I had such, such hopes. And then in season two, they really set it up as, as, you know, her and the, the, the like male book, book printer guy. And that seems to be the way they're going. And I was very sad. Oh, look, there's still time. (laughs) There is still time. (laughs) There's still time. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe there's going to be enough, you know, fan whatever. But but like, yeah. So so there's that. Um, So those are two reasons why I could have put away. But Penelope in particular, like, yeah, Penelope's great. And I think there's also the fact that like, because she's a writer and a lot of what she talks about in season two Mm -hmm. is like writing an audience and what people want and don't want and like playing with that and pushing things, but still remaining true to her own voice. You know, there's there's obviously going to be, you know, a way that I connect with that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I'm also a younger sibling. <laughs> this is going to be a spoiler for KW, but that's okay. Like there are a lot of relationships in the show. And the one I care most about is Eloise and Penelope. And yeah. the, I don't know how to say it. 
the friend breakup they had in the last episode of the season, like, was the worst scene for me. Like, it really (laughs) kind of broke my heart. (laughs) Oh, by far. Yeah. I was, it was devastating. It's interesting how, like, the most, you know, the things that get to us the most are, like, the sister drama, the sibling drama. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not the relationship drama. We don't care about that. (laughs) It's just... (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if if we want to see that friend relationship go through its ups and downs and be a correlative of a romance, Mm -hmm. that this would make sense that they would have a schism or whatever at this point in the overall, like, multi-season arc. And it's not, I think they'll become friends again. But, you know, in season one, Eloise was the one I think I was rooting more for. And I found Penelope's mooning over Colin and her duplicitousness really exhausting. And then now in season two, Eloise is getting like worse and worse and worse as a person. And Penelope is getting so much more likable and so much more depth added to her character. So they are diverging. And I think they're going to kind of you know, get back together and it's going to be okay. It's the classic frenemy, you know, situation. They're just Blair and Joe in a new generation. And, you know, I'm here for it. They're going to get back together. It's fine. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's <you>. amazing. <laughs> I agree. I like, I, I think that they're definitely going to get back. To, I don't, I don't think that the show, like the tenets of the show and the tenets of romance would not let us just have this friendship fall apart. No. And then just make us sit with that. Like, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> But it, it was hands down like the most effective thing. And that's actually one of the reasons I think why that's like in the final episode, right? Is because there's this acknowledgement, I think, that this is one of the like core relationships in this story, uh-huh. even more so in many ways than our leads. And, and really, why does it come apart? Well, it becomes apart because like they are, they're sort of fully revealed to each other, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. So like Penelope has been having this kind of secret second life. And then Eloise discovers it and, you know, has said something that she thinks is going to protect Eloise. It's like the she didn't want to do it, but it was the only thing. But Eloise can't, isn't in a place where she can really hear that. She just feels personally. So, like, the way that they, like, do break up, like, have this friend break up is, A, like, very, you know, it, it's very believable. And also, you know, like, because it is that they've been fully revealed to each other as the thing that's breaking up, it's this way of taking apart the friendship and then having them eventually, when they do come back together, it's going to be an even better friendship because they're actually able to be fully honest with each other and actually be their full selves around each other. And, you know, I think that that's actually like a really beautiful arc. And I really look forward to that. Yeah. It follows a lot of the same beats as like a, you know, actual romance. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You have to have the, the I think they call it the black moment or yeah. whatever, when it all seems dire. That's that's where they're at. Yeah. You guys have made me feel a lot better about season three. <laughs> I think it's going to keep, you know, being amazing. It seems like the writers know what they're doing. It seems like they kind of get better. You know, it, Season two is better than season one. I think they, they're improving on things. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that they've gotten more and more voices in the writer's room, from what I understand. So, like, you know, any time that a show, even even a Shonda Land show, even someone like Shonda, like right, who like mm-hmm. they like people will throw money at her shows, you know, like hey, her name's <laughs> attached to it. Yes, you get to make it, right? <laughs> but even when you know they were probably putting together like you know the pilot and they were like writing the season and they were trying to pitch it and do all those things, I mean, you know, I imagine that that was a much smaller group of people who were doing that than eventually were involved in season two and like different things like. You know, I know that some of the decisions that were made in terms of casting were because they had different kinds of people in the writer's room for season two, etc. So, 
Yeah, the more people you can get in there, especially for something like this, like the better off you're going to be. That's very true. So my last question, I don't know if KW has more, but my last one is, do you guys have any historical romance book recommendations? Oh, do we? (laughs) 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 I mean, we could talk about Courtney Milan forever. (laughs) We love her so much. (laughs) We really could. Um, And not only like, you know, so she's this amazing author. I just love everything that I've read of hers, but also... Um, she actually kind of like blew up the RWA world a little bit a couple of years yes. ago. Yeah. Yes. Um, and did some really cool stuff there. She's a great Twitter follower, especially because she's like a lawyer. Like that was her, that was like a lot, a big part of her training. So, you know, she just has this like great perspective. Anyway, I'll stop talking about her. Kelly is much better at actual like names of things and, you know, <laughs> making lists and keeping things. You know, because she's an archivist and she knows how to do things. Um, yeah, so I'll let, I'll let Kelly talk. Yeah, I mean, so we have a page on our blog of, you know, as I read things that are kind of awesome, I just put them up there. But so in terms of just basic recommendations, if people are really trying to get into romance and trying to find what kinds of things they like, I would definitely recommend Courtney Milan. The Worth Saga is ongoing. It's probably the most interesting in terms of having um, different kinds of characters doing different things. But I also have a soft spot for like the Brothers Sinister, (laughs) which is a little bit more traditional in terms of your Regency, but also it seems like all of the women, all the female characters in those books just have something like unique about them that I just, I can't pull away from. (laughs) It's, It's a lot of fun to read. If you're looking for queer romances, um, K.J. Charles is a big name in the romance world. My favorite of theirs is an unseen attraction. But also, if you're looking for other writers, there's Olivia Waite and Kat Sebastian. If you are looking for books written by people of color, um, Beverly Jenkins has been around for a while and writes a lot of great romances. Um, But also Alyssa Cole uh, and Jeannie Lin, who has written some Tong Dynasty romances, which... I had never read before. <laughs> it seems like a lot of romances are centered around, you know, England or America. But also just big names to look out for. I really enjoyed some romances that I've read by Kelly Bowen, Rose Lerner, Eva Lee, and Tessa Dare. So even though Tessa Dare has been around for a while, I, you know, they're funny books. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But those would be my recommendations. Great. So would for Tessa Dare, would you recommend books after 2015? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, it's hit or miss with Tessa Dare. I've read some that I've really enjoyed, and I've read some that I've just been like, ugh. <laughs> so it's really going to depend on your personal taste with, with her. But the others, I've just, I've been impressed. Great. Yeah, I do. Like, while we're, like, you know, like, so that is Kelly. She's She, she also, again you keep calling it our blog it's kelly's blog and then like every now and then i'm like i had a thought once a year ago (laughs) you have great thoughts (laughs) you're very sweet but i will say like in particular there's this really great post that she has on there called reading romance as an ace person that is just incredible um and i like pass it to people all the time and you know talk about it because i think there is this idea that the only reason people read or are interested in romance is because it's quote unquote like porn for women and like no (laughs) that's not i mean it can be like there are some romances that can be (laughs) and there definitely are some that are that's that's 100 certain because obviously we're talking about it as a genre but it's a wide-ranging you know like genre yes but yes uh so there is this post on on that blog in particular called reading romances and ace person that i absolutely recommend everyone read because it's great you're too kind (laughs) that sounds great i'm gonna go read that after we're done i think (laughs) great K 
Kenobi, do you have any other questions? Well, we didn't we didn't get into Norton or Newton the Corgi. We did not. Like at all. <laughs> I mean, Newton my hot corgi. take about Newton is that he is cute, but also one of those markers because people associate corgis with the queen and thus yeah. upper class yes. royalty, even though historically mm-hmm. corgis weren't popular until I think the twentieth century amongst the upper class. But that's just my hot take. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no anachronisms in this show at all. <laughs> the anachronisms don't matter. Even though I do history, like I don't care. <laughs> is yeah. it a good I care about is this a good story? And is the history are you using it to perpetuate good things or bad things? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I, I get really frustrated when people get hung up on the history because I'm like, no, it's a story first and then yeah. <laughs> and then we'll talk mm-hmm. about the history stuff. Yeah, the only thing that I will attack, though, is if there are potatoes in medieval England, because one, <laughs> there weren't. Two, I'm allergic to potatoes, and I hate them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, and the their house is covered in wisteria, and I have a friend who's English, and she gets very annoyed with that, because wisteria was not typically in the English countryside until such and such a year that's way, way, way later, but <laughs> it draws her so far out of the story that she's having trouble That's enjoying so it funny. and i'm like well i i like how everyone has like particular hiccups like no that yeah. is the the wisteria is the line that i'm drawing <laughs> yeah it is it is interesting because i think it's it's two things it's like well it, you know like i don't care about this because it's part of the story and it doesn't actually make that big of an impact but every now and then there is like where i'm like well that like you could have been accurate and it seems like maybe you were just lazy like that bridge that yes. you vaguely reference didn't exist and it wasn't even like a big part of the story so you could have just like not referenced it <laughs> like, like what <laughs> that's honestly like that's usually what i when i and i and i don't have like a, you know th- i don't think there's any one thing to be completely honest that i have like an encyclopedic you know like oh like my my grandfather knew rope really well he was like an actual cowboy not like whatever and and so like he would watch every single Western and be like, that rope didn't exist then. No one tied them like that. And I would just be like, I can't handle watching any, like, <laughs> we're just going to talk about rope the whole time. Amanda, I think we found your calling. You have to be the rope person. <laughs> no, I don't want to be at all. <laughs> but, you know, if if looking at the anachronisms or the mistakes or the or the deliberate changes actually gets a conversation going about not only the text, but also the his- the history yeah. or ephemeral, you know, very specific things. I think that's cool. That's curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's like rhizomatic learning. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of that. And so, you know, I will frequently talk about things like that with my students and we'll, we'll get into these tangents that are so productive and interesting. So, you know, maybe they, maybe they deliberately put in the wrong slang in an episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to get you talking about slang. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, also, yeah. it's also kind of that thing of just signaling to an audience. So I keep thinking about things like Hamilton, which brought oh, yeah. hip hop mm-hmm. to like, for a very deliberate reason, you know, yeah. um, because yeah. it's a cultural cue, right? And I think sometimes we do mm-hmm. that, you know, the anachronisms too. And that's why I don't care about them very much. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Especially because like, I think you guys mentioned very early on <laughs> in this conversation, you know, telling a story now, either writing it or, well, writing it as a book or a TV show, you're always in conversation with the contemporary audience and history. So there can be you know, cues that we use, like, I know this is historically inaccurate, but it's going in because of the audience I'm speaking to and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I like I know that we need to get out of here, but I do want to say this is one of the things that uh, that I know. I'll just keep talking, even though my dog desperately wants to go on a walk. <laughs> so so one of the things that I think like definitely like Kelly, I've heard you you just like lose your mind about is like 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 film, particularly adaptations where the clothing is just like ridiculously wrong and just like ridiculously dumb. And it's, you know, and, and like I, I have like friends who are customers, et cetera. And so, and quite often the decision that is made is like, well, this person is supposed to be read as like sexy. And if we put them in period accurate things, <laughs> people are going to read them as being ridiculous and not as being sexy. Like mm-hmm. no one's going to find this sexy. But then like, you know, quite often they like slide that over to this extent where it's like, okay, but are they wearing Lycra now? Like what? Anyway. (laughs) So I do think like there is, you know, it's always a balance. And I think you're right. Like, it's like, okay, well, how does this read? How does an audience going to do that? Or or how are they going to read this? And how are they going to take this in? And I think that there's always like a give and take in terms of, you know, like, okay, I need them to read this correctly in order to understand like the, the, like what's trying to happen in the story. But also, putting them in a motorcycle jacket and lycra in like queen charlotte's court maybe not the best idea that's the greatest idea <laughs> once i said it i was like i kind of want to see that now <laughs> awesome well thank you guys so much for being with us thank you yeah thanks for the invite and for listeners i just want to remind them oh my god so many tabs open uh- <laughs> <laughs> isn't that a metaphor for yeah. me <laughs> you can find Kelly and Amanda's blog <laughs> at cravatscritalincraft.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for having us on. This was great. You know, it was great meeting some of you and also <laughs> continuing, like, coming back uh, and having this conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. Also, everybody, stay curious and read more genres. Love it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Kelly and Amanda. We had a ton of fun with that conversation. And next week, we'll be talking about the new album from Florence and the Machine, Dance Fever, the new season of The Circle on Netflix, and the HBO Max series, Our Flag Means Death. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. And the show on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. You can email us at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. You can also find our website at positivelypopculture.com. And please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pause Pop.